<laughs> if I start kind of blurring a little bit, um, hang with me. Um, discover class next week at 11 o'clock. Excuse me. At 11 o'clock, right across the hall. That's who we are, where we came from. And uh, just a bit, if you, you can ask questions, we'll have leaders there. Love to engage so that you know who we are. Um, also, if you're interested in baptism, um, and we're going to have baptism for Easter. Easter's coming up April 16th. So if you're interested in baptism, see me or one of our elders. We'd love to talk to you about that. And then finally, if you're following us on maybe social media, uh, we're, we're kind of following Lent a bit, and then we're having, we'll have another social media blog um, that will be a blast that will come out this afternoon. And it's going to kind of go through know and connect and live. We're trying to fast on Thursdays together. trying to do as a church is just take time to enter into the suffering of Christ, to think about him so that Easter doesn't surprise us, that we're thinking and we're being thoughtful and intentional about where we're going, okay? Um, so with those things in mind, just look on social media. We will have a Good Friday Easter, uh, Good Friday service that will be uh, on that Friday where we'll break our fast together. So with that in mind, prologue, right? Um, we spend time every Sunday morning, and I want just to remind you while we're here, so you don't forget. I mean, you go to church and forget why we're doing it, right? We're here to worship. That's that's what we're here for. We're not here to worship so that our families will feel good. Oh, that'd be great. We're not here to worship so that our marriages will be strong. We're not here to worship so that our church will grow or so that we'll be generous. We're here to worship because God is worthy of worship. Can you guys hear me? That is very different. I'm down with this. Okay. All right. I'm just going to hold it. I'm I'm going back to the 80s today. All right. We're going to do some of this. No, I'm just kidding. All right. We're here to worship because God's worthy of worship. And so we got to have to be reminded of that because we get in the, in the oh, I need this to be fixed, and God, I want you to do this. And, and we get kind of caught up in the why, and the goals get flipped, and we forget that God is worthy of worship. That's why we worship. It's a response. We see God, and our hearts go, whoa. And if that doesn't happen, there's something wrong, there's something broken, there's something that needs to be revisited. And so I just say, let's, let's remember that as we're going through Genesis to, together. If this is your, your first time here, um, we, we go through books of the Bible. Typically, we're, we're in Genesis right now. We're up to Genesis 22, which is going to be the apex of Abraham and his story, right? Um, and, and we've seen that. Uh, we saw last week, Joey kind of took us through the history of the promise, and, and, it, and it's traced all the way through. And Abraham has been waiting 25 years, Abraham and Sarah, 25 years to see this baby that was promised. And he wait. I mean, have you ever waited 25 years for a promise? Talk about impatient, right? We talked about that. And it's not like he sat content along the way, right? Abraham was mountain high experience talking with God himself, valley down low when he decided to take his own route and, and take, well, here's what God's will is, but let me do it this way. And, and through Hagar, we get Ishmael. And then he, he lied a couple times about his wife being his sister so that he could avoid any, any possible difficulty. And so we've seen Abraham be up here, and we've seen Abraham be down here. And we're a lot like Abraham. Our Christian walk is up and our Christian walk is down. 
And so today, what I want you to, us to hear and to hear the Word of God tell us, right, from Genesis 22. I mean, just reading the story is difficult, right? How can God ask Abraham to offer up his son? I mean, that's the obvious question that should occur to us at first. So grab your Bibles. I just wanted you to have them. Uh, if you don't have one, we've we got some new ones that are down there. If you do not have one and you steal that thing, just read it. Okay? If you read it, then we're good with you taking it if you don't have one. That, that's what they're for. All right? Um, so so just, just have that in your hands. Turn to Genesis 22. And we're going, to go, we're going to kind of look at it together. So here's the story. Let's get the story in our heads first and meditate on it a little bit. So verse 1, after these things, so after these things being chapters all the way up to 21 through 22, right? Um, God tested Abraham. All right, God tested Abraham. And so the author softens what we're about to read, letting us know that, that God is aware that he is testing Abraham. Abraham is not aware that he is being tested necessarily, right? Abraham's just kind of going through life, and he's, got to talk, he's talking with God. Now, in, in school, when you, you take a test, is it to inform the teacher how the teacher is doing? It might be nowadays, but it, it was not originally <laughs> intended to do that, right? No, that's not what a test is for. It's not for the teacher. It's for the student. A a test is designed to let you know where you are, what you know and what you don't know. Testing is for you. The teacher already probably knows where you are. This is so that you will find out what you know and what you don't. And it's, it's not the same as tempting. God never tempts us. But there is a testing. So we'll know where we are. And so in the time that we live, especially in a, a pretty religious culture, um, although some of our, our religious culture is, is waning around us, and we're not, we're not afraid of that because we get how to live from the Word of God, right? Not, not from culture, right? Many people have Christian morals, and they don't know why. It's just what they've been kind of taught. That's what they've learned, and, and that's great. But we need to know why. So we have these beliefs that are stated This is what I believe. I believe this is true about marriage. This is true about raising children. This is true about uh, sexual ethic and about a good work ethic and why should, you know, this is what I believe. And then they live out there, but when we live out our lives, it isn't actually what we believe. Right? So our stated beliefs are not always our actual beliefs. You know what your actual beliefs are because that's what you do. Right? It's your actions. And so the only way to really know the gap is by watching our actions in, in real life. Like, we know that we are a missionary, but in life, if you never share the gospel with anyone, you probably really don't believe that. You just know that's something you should know. If you see what I'm talking about, because it doesn't line up. So when God tests Abraham, he calls him. He says, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham answers, here I am. And then he says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Again, how can God ask Abraham to do that? Before Abraham, we read in, in Genesis 6, Whoever sheds the blood of a human, by a human shall that person's blood be shed. Murder's not good. Later at Sinai, the Ten Commandments, we read, Thou shalt not murder. 
And there were warnings uh, more than once to Israelites to not be like the Canaanites who burned their children in sacrifice to pagan gods. And Pharaoh in Egypt, if you remember, all the baby boys uh, of Israel were to be cast into the river. How can God ask something that seemed to be against his own law and desires of Abraham? And further, not only would Abraham lose a son, but Isaac was who? The son of promise. 25 years in the unveiling. Brought from impossibility. Not Ishmael, but Isaac. Not through Hagar, right, but through Sarah. Not from Eliezer, but from Abraham. Isaac was the embodiment of the promise that the whole earth would be blessed from. He was the hope of the world from Genesis 3. The beginning of a new humanity, just like Adam and Eve, but from faith. Now, Abraham's given this command. Offer up your son. And this is not totally unlike the command from Genesis 12, if you remember that one, where he, he said, God said to go to Abraham and to a land where I will show you. And so Abraham didn't know where he was going. He was called to leave his family, leave his surroundings, his stability, his community, his, his family, uh, um, a comfortable life, familiar culture. Leave all of that and go to where I'm going to show you. And now his son. And in that culture, his son was his only social hope to leave a legacy. Right? Ishmael's not in the picture anymore. That was last chapter. He's gone. God's requiring everything. And Isaac isn't a one-year-old. Why'd you say that? He is at least old enough and strong enough to carry wood for a fire on his back, right? He's been around long enough for a father to build a deep affection for him. You see that in the verses, the affection from Abraham. Isaac knows what family worship looks like. He's like, hey, where's, where's this? And are we do- I know what we're doing here. Right? They've spent many times together, Abraham and Isaac. Isaac may be the most precious thing in Abraham's life. And to us, child sacrifice sounds horrendous. To Abraham's ears, though, it's not quite as alien. It's not quite as outrageous. Although as a father, it's still devastating. Right? Remember when Israel was coming out of Egypt and the last plague was the firstborn son to die? If you remember that. The firstborn son was the future and where the wealth and the status and the identity of the family was secured for the next generation. And when God said the life of the firstborn will be forfeit unless there is a sacrifice of a lamb for Israel, because that would have been on Israel too. What he's saying is that there is a debt that every family owes me because of sin. That's what he's saying. And Israel would have lost theirs too if they didn't paint the doorway and the lintel with the blood of a lamb who sacrificed, who took away for the firstborn son. And also, if you've been able to keep up with your community Bible readings that we're, we're kind of doing together, right? In 2 Kings 3, it was this week. It was amazing. I was just reading this week. A, a king that was battling against Israel sacrificed his oldest son in an attempt to win the war. 
So it's not uncommon, as shocking as it sounds to us. And so when God says, go to Abraham, he doesn't linger. You see verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey. It's not a quick trip, because we read it's a three-day journey. So this obedience is not an impulse of obedience. It's not a, oh, let's go, let's hurry. It's three days of walking with your son and having that on your mind. And so they gather what they need, and they head out. When they arrive, he says, in verse 5, he says to the servants, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And at this point, given what you know, either that is a white lie or somehow it's a statement of hope in God against logic. It's one or the other. Either it's a white lie to help him walk off, be easier in front of the young man, the servants that were with him, or somehow there's some hope in that. And so this is where it's really, it's very helpful from the New Testament, from Hebrews. I just want to read Hebrews 11, verse 17. It says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who received the promises, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered, this is Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Abraham, this is what Hebrews tells us, kind of the answer key to the Old Testament in some places, right? That that. Abraham considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead. So we don't find Abraham in a vacuum where we just start in Genesis 22, right? And Abraham is just this person we've never heard of before, and the next thing you know, he's trusting God like this. He's been up. He's been down. It's been 25 years of God fulfilling his promise. And so we have a seasoned person that's walked with God. Somehow Abraham believed that even though he couldn't figure it out, I'm going to wait and see. So Abraham, he took the wood in verse 6 and the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac's back. And we'll see, the story just goes really fast through the first five verses. Abraham, God shows up, Abraham, go do this. And Abraham says yes. And then so they get up and then they go and he saddles his donkey. And in verse 6, everything just goes into slow motion in the story. And it slows down. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac's back, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went on, both of them together. And so we, we see him take the fire and the knife. He's a father. We don't know exactly how old Isaac is, right? And I don't know, in, in me... Because I'm a father, and, you know, I, I think about that story in a, in a similar way, I guess. And maybe this is the tenderness of a father saying, it's not time yet. I'm going to hold on to the, danger, to the dangerous stuff until we get to where we have to use that. Right? And we get a closer look. And Isaac, knowing what's going on to some degree, knowing they're going to worship, says, 
to his father. Verse 7, my father. And Abraham answers, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And let that sink in. He knows what's happening. They've done this before. This is rote. This is family worship. We do this at least weekly, maybe more. And the weight falls on Abraham in that moment. And the silence, I would think, crushes him. What do I say? And he answers, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so we see meshed together tenderness and hopefulness and a heart from Abraham. And then we read for the second time in two verses, so they went, both of them, together. You see the story is that they're walking in peace and shalom together on the way up the mountain. And as they walk, there's this picture of harmony. Isaac in innocence, trusting his father, and Abraham in agony, trusting his father. You you see the parallel there. And when they arrived, Abraham, he built the altar and he laid the wood on it and everything. You see the and and the and and the and and the and in the language. It's just and this and then this and then this. God will provide. And then Abraham built the altar and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, nowhere do we read that Isaac fought him. Even though Isaac possibly could have been stronger than Abraham. I mean, Abraham's about 100. He's actually older than 100, right? And so he must have willingly allowed himself to be bound, hands and feet, and then submitted to lie on the altar as a sacrifice. And the author, the author doesn't even tell us how Abraham felt. I find that interesting. I think it's implicit in the story. But we glimpse into the heart of a father for his son in the events that are leading up to the sacrifice, right? Abraham had nothing left but trust that God would provide. Abraham knew that Sarah couldn't bear children, and yet here is Isaac. He's here. God made a way where there was no way once before, and I'm just going to have to trust him to do it again. I can't see it. In fact, he called me to it. And so the passage in Hebrews is incredibly insightful for us as we read this story. Because at this point, Abraham hasn't read about anybody being resurrected from the dead. It's, it hasn't. There's no rec- recollection of that. And he raises his hand to complete the task, and the angel calls to him. Verse 11, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behind him was a ram caught in the thicket. God will provide. 
by his horns. And he offered up the ram instead of his son. And so in verse 14, so Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. That's a heavy story. And since it was originally told by Moses to the children of Israel before they went into the promised land, where they were coming out of the wilderness for like 40 years, after coming out of Egypt and experiencing the, the Passover, where the, the sacrifice of a lamb saved their firstborn from death, and not the Egyptians, this is incredibly meaningful. This, this is original intention, original meaning, original audience, right? We, we have to start there first. Otherwise, we read a story in the Bible, and then we apply it straight to our lives, and sometimes we'll miss the richness of it. And I don't want to jump to the New Testament too quickly either. So my first point was the story. Second point is the lens of the Old Testament. What did that mean? Third point is lens of the New Testament. What did they hear? What did the children of Israel hear? Who would they identify with in the story? Right? What was the original meaning behind this story? Is it, is it so that we know, hey, there will be sacrifices in the Christian life that have to be made? You can make that. Is that the primary? I'm not sure. Or absolute obedience is required to follow God. Yeah? I can see where those ideas come from. I don't think that's the primary intent, though, of what is going on here. And maybe maybe at first they identify with Abraham because of the difficult choice that he had to make. And maybe you would, too. But at the heart of the message of this story is a God who provides for his people. So that they will live. It's the name given to the mount at the end of the story. It's actually the name and what Moriah means at the beginning. Against all odds, God, in even in unimaginable ways, he makes a way where there seems to be no way so that his people will live. Isaac died on the altar. If Isaac dies on the altar, there's no Israel. Isaac is a descendant, right? And so is Israel, who's listening to this story. The ram died so that Isaac could live. And they know that, leaving Egypt, the lamb had to die so that Israel could live. And they saw in the Passover and from Exodus with the sacrifice instructions that sin demands a payment, and God provides for his people that payment that they might live. And so if they're about to enter the promised land and it's filled with giants and enemies and they read verse 17, and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. When he restates the covenant, knowing that God one way or another will keep his promises, he'll provide for his people. That's got to be incredibly reassuring to them. And so whenever we study the Bible and we do that together, we try to do this every once in a while, remind you, keep the original audience in mind first. All right, let's not jump. The Bible's not about us. It's for us. Right, it's, it's written to them for us. It's not written to us. We, we forget that sometimes, and so it's just it's helpful to say that. Um, and so that's where we start. We start with that understanding. The original meaning is that God is a God who provides for his people so that they can live. That's the Old Testament lens. But the story is so rich that we, we don't stop there. We press in. How does Abraham walk up the mountain with Isaac on their way to worship? What does that look like? I mean, is he thinking, 
I can do, I can do this. I can obey. I've just got to gut it out. I've, I've just got to obey. I've just, I white knuckle it. If I could just, I can, I can make it. I can follow God. I'm the little engine that could, right? I read that book growing up. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. I think. And just, just get up a steam. Everyone, maybe they'll marvel at my faith after I get through this. I used to have that in mind because that was the way I viewed Christian obedience. I, uh, I saw it as something that must be done by me, by my willpower, my ability, my determination. That's what the rest of the world taught me. I've got to perform well enough to be accepted by my friends in junior high because I was... On my driver's license, I was 5'4 and 114 pounds. So I had to, I had small man syndrome. I had to be bigger than I was so that I would prove that I matter. I've got to ace this test so my teachers won't think I'm stupid. I've got to practice hard at soccer so I won't be made fun of. I've got to do well on my ACT or it means that I'm a failure. I've got to have the right clothes or the right job or the right degree or the right spouse or the right house, drive the right car. You see, I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. Hebrews 11 says otherwise. We learn that Abraham believed God could raise him from the dead to keep his promise. That's what drove him up the mountain. Going up the mountain with with Isaac, although not necessarily joyful at all, there was a resigned hopefulness in putting everything into God and trusting Him alone. God can do this. He's got to. God will provide. He's got to. God has gotten me this far. He's got to. God will see to it. I can't see the way, but I know that He can. And if He called me to it, He's going to stay beside me. He's going to call. He's going to provide. That's what faith says. Faith does not say, I can do it. Faith says, I can't do it, but God can. Not, I believe in me. I just, I'm good enough, smart enough. It's not, that's not faith. God loves it when we trust him. It glorifies him. Especially in the test. What is God asking Abraham? Are you willing to give up my very gift of promise? Abraham. Here's basically the question that God's asking Abraham that I find so challenging. Abraham, do you love my promise or the effects of my promise more than me? This is a call to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the first commandment, to have no other gods before me. Right? This isn't gritting your teeth and working harder to make it up the mountain so that you learn to obey. It isn't out of duty. It's not out of obligation that you're able to live the Christian life. It's by understanding what Abraham understood. That this test and this story, it isn't about Abraham's obedience at all. God is the hero of the story. Not Abraham. It was God that called. It was God that tested. It was God that provided a ram for sacrifice. It was God who blessed Abraham by swearing of the covenant. This is about God building faith in him and his people. 
Not for them work, not for him to work to accept it. It's about trusting God to provide in all circumstances of life, even when it seems like there is no hope. In the darkest of times, remember that he brings light out of darkness and out of chaos he brings order and out of death he brings life. God provides for his people. And you notice it's not Abraham who provides for God. Isaac's not sacrificed. God provides the sacrifice and the ram behind him. And the beauty is that if Abraham just thought God was loving, well, then it's just not that big a deal. Why do you want me to go up the mountain and worship? I mean, if you're just loving, there's really no, it's no big deal, right? Sin's not that big a deal. But, but he also knows that God's just, is not just just, he's not just righteousness, because if he is, why go up the mountain? Just kill me here. I don't have a chance. There's no, I don't, there's no even sense in me going up the mountain. I have no hope. Just kill me here. But see, there's the tension that's never removed in the Bible. God is loving and gracious. And at the same time, he is just and righteous. And because he has both of those in mind, that he has hope that through another payment, he goes up the mountain in hope. This gives us a glimpse of what atonement looks like. To to have our sins paid for by another, that we can't pay our own sins. This is the gospel in Genesis. We saw it in 3, it keeps showing its head. Here's the gospel again in Genesis 22, right? And in fact, the apostle Paul borrows this language from Genesis 22. When we hear God say twice, you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. Your son whom you love. God said that, not Abraham. A father's heart for his son, and yet there's a demand for a payment for sin. And so when Paul writes in Romans 8, verse 32, see if this sounds familiar. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? Or one that you probably know if you grew up in church. If you don't, I'm going to tell you anyway, right? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten, his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish. It's Genesis. It's a plan from the beginning. Jesus is the son in whom God loved, his only son, who God did not hold back, who God provides for his people so that they may live. Here's a quotation from a, A pastor says, Isaac points us to Jesus, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we can look at God taking his son up on the mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us. Because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. You see, Isaac is a picture of the price that God paid at the cross when Jesus, his precious son, like Isaac, willingly laid down his life. Nobody took it from him. In total obedience and trust of his father. So when Jesus is saying, not my will, but yours, you also see the the love of a father is like, Your only son, the one in whom you love, 
God is giving forth his son. The son is willingly laying down for the joy set before him, for the glory of his name, for the joy of his peoples. This is what sacrificial love looks like. He took our place. He paid our debt. And he provided a way for us to live. And so the question is, do you trust him? Do you really believe that? I'm not talking about in your head, your stated belief. We live in a culture where you can hide for 50 years and say the right thing. And there's no heart transformation. There's no hunger for God. There's no passion for his name. There's no desire for those that are going to hell to come with us. This has got to affect our hearts. To see that what God did should be required of us. And so I say, what is, what is blocking you from experiencing that life? What's holding you back? What one thing is more important than God in your life that needs to be offered up? What's your Isaac? That which is most precious. That, that keeps you from trusting God, right? That, that you're still trusting yourself for. It's why you can't give up everything to God. It, it, it is, whatever it is, it is your functional Savior. You go to God so that you can have this. God, I must have this to follow you. When in actuality, that is your God. God wants all your heart. That's where the test comes in. Is it your desire to, for beauty or to hold on to beauty? If I'm not beautiful, then what, what are people going to think? Where's my worth going to come? Is it intellect? Is it power? Is it your health or your diet that makes you feel okay? Is it your status or your approval of others? Is it comfort, accomplishments, your job, your marriage? Is it your family, children, friends? What needs sacrificing? To know that God will provide, not you. Because the world is going to take it from you at some point. All of those things I just mentioned, they're going to fade. And God didn't spare his own son and gives us everything we need. So that we are able to release everything to him. Our one true treasure. The one thing that won't fade. This is how you're free from things that own us, things that own me. We're able to give them up because he is our everything. And then we can actually have them the way we're supposed to. We can treasure them the way they're supposed to be treasured. You can trade sin for joy. You can trade weight for rest. You can trade a have to for a get to. That we learn to walk in that freedom. What is our Isaac? I just remember, God provides for his people so that they can live. I'm going to ask you to pray uh, with me. We have two prayer directives we're going to put on the screen. We're going to take like two and a half minutes to just pray. Holy Spirit, we, we pray the Holy Spirit would move during this time. As we've been looking at God's word, as we've been hopefully changed, that this is not informational. This is not just inspirational, but this is transformational, right? There's a, there's a big difference. And so we pray right now the Holy Spirit would move as we pray as a people. 
We want to hear the gospel through the singing of the word. We want to hear the gospel through the preaching of the word. We want to spend time praying, and then we'll do fellowship and breaking bread, the prayer. And we'll pray together, right? And so the first one is, ask God to reveal your Isaac. And that you would trust him to provide for you, not you provide for yourself. If my marriage would just work out, then I'll be okay. If You see what, what gets in there. And then secondly, pray for faith to walk up the mountain like Abraham. Not because I got to, I got, I got to go, I got. But because you believe that God will keep his promises. Whether your eyes don't see it, whether your heart doesn't believe it and you don't feel it, it's not about what you feel, it's not about what you see, it's not about your five senses, it's about truth. It's about the character of God that you can trust. Ask that you can walk through life like that. And let's spend a couple minutes praying. visit your people. We know that you feel both heaven and earth. We know that you're here. We ask that you would move. Our hearts get hard. We don't desire that. And sometimes they're just apathetic and they just don't care. And so we need you to move amongst us and, and through us. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you change us? That we don't just take more information. We as Christians don't do what we know now. forward, that we want to see reconciliation, that we worship you for who you are, not just what you do for us, that we're thankful for what you do, that we praise you for who you are. God, that that's this time now that our lips don't betray our hearts, but that they spill out so that this whole North Alabama will see that we'll be changed, that our, our, our communities are different, that our families are different. God, that's our hope. And we get the hope from your word. We see that you breathe life into death and it's just a lie that you speak into chaos and order comes out of it you speak and where there is no way you make a way for your people to salvation and it's not just in the past and it's not justification it is to live you give us hope 
So we praise your name. We thank you, Lord Jesus. You call us to yourself. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Guys, if this is your first time here, we take the Lord's Supper every week. If you do not hear the gospel in the singing and in the preaching and in the the prayer time, God, we, we, we pray that you would see the gospel at the table. There are three tables in the back. There are two tables up front. And we as Christians, this is for Christians, we just come together, whether you're by yourself or with your spouse or with a group of friends or your missional community, and we take a piece of bread that represents Jesus' body. And we take a cup that represents, a cup of juice that represents his blood that washed away our sins, that, that draw us, drew us near back to Christ so that we could walk with him in the cool of the day. That you can have a relationship with Jesus that's not mechanical, that's not going up the mountain. I think I can, I think I can. But because he loves you so much that he laid down his life for you that you can know who God is. To see that he loves us, that he would not even give up his son, his very own son, whom he loves. We celebrate that through a meal. If you want somebody to pray with you or you don't know Jesus, man, we want you to know that. There'll be folks in the back. I'd love to pray with you. So let's just take this time to take the Lord's Supper, to reflect on His sacrifice for us. That joy would spill over. That wholeness would be understood. That that reconciliation would be longed for for this whole cosmos. As He is doing the plan. He is doing the work. And He is keeping His promise. Therefore, we have hope. Let's do that together.